Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Israeli voters went to the polls today for the second time this year. No party's likely to get a majority, so it's likely to have another long attempt to form a coalition government. With me to talk about the election is Hagai Matar. He's executive director of 972. 972 is an independent online nonprofit magazine owned and run by Israeli and Palestinian journalists. The name of the site comes from the telephone country code for both Israel and Palestine. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hello. You know, it, we just had an election in April and... Is there anything about the campaign that seemed to change the dynamic at all? The, uh, did the candidates say anything? Was there uh, new issues brought to the fore? Is, is, does it just feel like a rerun? Well, in many ways, it does actually feel like a rerun. Uh, some of the basic issues at, at the core of the elections are very much the same. Once again, it feels like mostly a personal referendum on Netanyahu himself, with all the parties basically announcing as kind of their primary uh, agenda whether or not they're willing to sit in a coalition government with him or not. That is kind of the main um, catalyzer for d- deciding whether people support the, the different parties or not. Um, and another thing that is very similar to the previous elections is that once again, the issue of the occupation of Palestinian territories is completely absent from the discussion. So these two things are, are somewhat constant. A new kind of um, element that we've seen play out in this election, which we didn't in the past, is the issue of relationship between religion and the state. So this election, to a great extent, has been around um, different camps in how should the religious life integrate with the state, to what extent should religion have a say on people's day-to-day lives? So that has become a central issue uh, recently. Well, let's pull apart those two issues a little bit. You mentioned that um, the occupation hasn't been a big deal in the campaign. I mean, the only headline that we saw about the campaign really was that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu declared he'd apply Israeli sovereignty in the Jordan Valley if he won. And, you know, um, that was a big deal. But that wasn't registering there? Even that did not really register. I mean, also in the previous elections, we've heard Netanyahu make similar statements, kind of making very broad statements about wanting to enact some of the occupied territories. And now he's a bit more specific about mentioning the Jordan Valley. Um, I think this is something that plays to a small part of the kind of extreme right wing voter base. Uh, They might find it more relevant and kind of to pull them away from the more extreme right parties to his Likud party. But for the majority of people, it's quite it really isn't interesting. And I think it's not an issue that anybody discusses. The right in Israel has been very successful in removing the occupation as an issue for public debate. It's become a uh, status quo that everybody sort of accepts. And almost none of the opposition parties is proposing any change or any sort of end or solution to the occupation. Only the joint list, which is made up of the of the Arab Palestinian parties, um, is talking about ending the occupation, but that's a very small minority uh, amongst the different parties. So Benny Gans, the, the leader of the Blue-White Coalition that seems to be the big opposition party now in Israel, uh, they don't. he doesn't really talk about annexing Jewish settlements or the Jordan Valley or the, the idea of whether or not he's for a Palestinian state. That doesn't come up. No, no, that it really doesn't. It's not an issue for, for him. And actually, Gantz has been saying that he would want to enter a coalition government with Likud right after the elections. Uh, without Netanyahu, that's, again, about the personal issue of the referendum. So he's saying he would want Likud, but not Netanyahu. But in terms of their uh, agenda on the occupation, that is not a problem for blue and white. Uh- what does that say about um, the future? I mean, it's hard to. Uh, what is? Yeah, I mean, people always said, "Well, if there's no two-state solution, it's a one-state solution," and it almost sounds like that's what's happened. I think the reality on the ground is that of kind of the worst of all possible worlds, where you have um, kind of different areas with different levels of control by Israel and the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, but with Israel as kind of the overarching ruler of the land. Um, 
And de facto, you're right. I mean, there is one state. Israel controls all of it. Uh, but nothing is forcing Israel to give Palestinian Palestinians their rights. So what this means is when we're going to the elections today, what we're seeing is a vast majority of Jewish voters who don't care about the occupation at all, deciding on a government that will probably prolong the occupation, whereas the majority of Palestinians don't have the right to vote and can't use these elections to say, wait a second, you know, we're living under your boot, we, we're living our, under your control, uh, and we want to end this. So, so that's integral to the system. Um, in terms of what this means to the future, I think that the biggest question is to what extent are Palestinians and the international community able to shift the power balance? Because right now, Israel has no incentive to end the occupation. It only profits from it and has very little to lose. Uh, Palestinians and the international community have to be active in changing that power balance. I'm talking with Hagai Matar. He's executive director of 972, the online magazine, and we're talking about the election in Israel. Voters went to the polls today for the second time this year. Um, you also mentioned the role of uh, religion and the state uh, in a previous answer, and that playing a bigger role here. I assume that's because at the end of the during the last coalition attempt, uh, Mr. Lieberman. Uh, who was uh, involved in uh, the coalition building uh, said he was going to uh, keep uh, keep to his stick to his convictions, and he wasn't going to um, you know back down on ultra orthodox men having to serve in the military in Israel for the first time. Is that the the, the thing that's uh, talked about more? Very much so. And as my colleague Marin Rappaport had mentioned in his reporting uh, on 972 magazine, what we're seeing is a sort of collapse within the Israeli right, wherein for many years the right was united around a common cause of removing the occupation from the agenda, of saying the occupation is a given, settlements are not going down, the occupation is not going anywhere. After they've won and the occupation is no longer an issue – they're starting to break up and you're starting to see the differences between different shades of right. So you have the ultra-Orthodox, which are very, very committed to uh, a very extreme interpretation of Judaism and a very strong commitment to it. You have the uh, ultra-nationalist um, religious right. And then you have people like Avigdor Lieberman, who's very committed to a very secular version of nationalism uh, and and the right. And those gaps are tearing up Netanyahu's coalition, and that's why he wasn't able to form the previous coalition and might not be able to form a coalition in after these elections, which means we might be facing a third round of elections, uh, as crazy as that might sound. That Well, it sounds punishing <laughs> for an electorate. Uh, Very much so, uh, or uh, journalists. And um, what are there... Attempts to get out the vote that are notable or could change the dynamic because that's always the thing in the United States. Well, if you want to change things, you've got to get out the vote and get more people to the polls who would vote differently. Does that happen? Yes, very much so. The question of voter turnout has been central in the really last days leading up to the elections, and it has been the central issue in almost all of the campaigns throughout the day today, where Netanyahu is saying basically that Arab voters are going in droves to vote. They're voting in masses. We've actually heard that from Netanyahu in the previous elections and the one before that. So this isn't very new, but it's actually intensified the, the way that he's been inciting against our voters and telling his kind of right wing base, you have to go out and vote or otherwise Arabs will decide which is the next government. Uh, meanwhile, you have kind of the centrist secular parties saying the ultra-Orthodox are going out in droves and voting. It's secular people on the center-right or center-left go out and vote. We need your vote. And Arabs are saying, you know, the right is voting. We need to go out and vote and make sure that we have uh, our voices heard. So that really has been the central issue over the past few days. And I heard uh, voter turnout was up, that, that there were more people voting. It, it is slightly up. We'll only have final figures once uh, polls close in about uh, two hours. And so far, it's been slightly higher than the April elections, but not significantly in a way that you can say this is a game changer. Um, it's very, very hard to say. I was reading on your 972 Magazine website about the uh, 
Bedouin villages and people are driving uh, Bedouin residents to polling polls, polling stations, which sometimes are quite far away. Uh, that that's another attempt to change the equation. Yeah, this, this actually also happened last time. Uh, basically, what the, what we're dealing with is uh, Bedouin villages villages that are unrecognized by the state, which means that they're completely illegal, even though most of them existed before the state of Israel was founded. Um, and because they're unrecognized, they don't have polling stations, which means that people have to travel travel for dozens of miles in the desert just to reach their polling uh, stations. Uh, what we saw the last elections was a nonprofit, an Israeli nonprofit called Zazim or Moving, um, saying organizing transportation, organizing buses to take Bedouin voters to the polling stations. Uh, just a couple of days ago, the Israeli Central Elections Committee decided that that sort of an action is illegal um, and prevented Zazim from carrying out a similar operation now, uh, which has led a group of Israeli citizens, independent citizens, to just organize a massive array of, of carpooling, independent um, and separate from that of Zazim, just one-on-one finding people to, to take them to polling stations. You know, it's interesting when you hear about an election that, um, you know, it's kind of contested by, uh, you know, the other in a way you you know you don't mm-hmm. want the other to get a vote uh if what what does that say i mean what is ruling the day here well you're very right i think um one of the realities of the israeli society that is becoming more and more apparent is just how polarized it's become for netanyahu to say arabs and leftists are voting that is a way for him to say there is a serious threat to national security. This isn't like the the opposing camp might win the elections, kind of a more moderate democratic principle. He's saying they're going to take over and they're going to destroy our country. One of his uh, campaign messages was actually sent to supporters saying, Arabs want to annihilate us all, which is why we need to stop them from voting. Uh, Netanyahu's campaign later said that that message was sent out by a staffer and that was a mistake. But still, it kind of speaks to the to the mood at Netanyahu's campaign staff uh, and messaging. And it's very much around that sort of messaging that if if Arabs go out and vote, we're losing this country. It's going to to be destroyed. Uh, I think that's a very, very extreme, very dangerous sort of rhetoric. Well, it's certainly the global trend. I mean, everybody on the planet is saying, that the, uh, don't let the other get into power. It's, it's, it'll be bad news. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I think that what's been interesting with Netanyahu over the past few days is not only saying don't let the other vote, but accusing um, both Arab voters and the left or whoever it is that Netanyahu deems to be left, including uh, Mr. Lieberman that you mentioned, who is very extreme to the right, but opposes Netanyahu personally. So Netanyahu has been saying all the people who oppose me are basically trying to rig the elections. They're committing mass voter fraud. uh, And that's also part of the problem. So it's not only just mass voting, it's mass voter fraud. Um, I think that is a very dangerous game that Netanyahu is playing in laying the foundations to the, the possibility of saying tomorrow or the day after when the election results come in, actually, this was an illegitimate election. Yeah. We don't recognize the result of the elections. I really hope it's, it's not going that way. But he has been laying the ground to that. Hage Matar is the executive director of 972, the online magazine. Thanks for talking with us about the elections in Israel today. We'll keep our fingers crossed that there's not a third election for you. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we will have a conversation about how climate is changing the Great Lakes. It's part of the media collaboration covering climate now that we're involved in this week. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week, WBEZ participates in Covering Climate Now. It's a global collaboration of over 250 news outlets. We're strengthening coverage of the climate crisis. We're running a week of climate coverage before the United Nations Climate Action Summit begins in New York on September 23rd. Today, Worldview looks at what's happening with aquatic life in the Great Lakes. Earlier this year, the Environmental Law Policy Center released the report, An Assessment of the Impacts of Climate Change on the Great Lakes. And we're going to talk about a section in the report on the ecology of the Great Lakes. With me is Dana Infante. She's an associate professor in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University, and she worked on the fish part. Nice to talk with you, Dana. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. Before we get into the um, aquatic life part, I don't think um, it, it's important for people to understand, and I certainly didn't think about it much before reading the report, how a warming lake works and what happens to the currents and uh, nutrients as a lake warms. Can you give us a little primer on what's going on? Sure. Um With warming water temperatures, we know at a minimum we're likely to get changes in areas that can support certain fish species. This also translates in some cases to less ice cover in the winter. And where it really starts to affect water movement, maybe one of the more important processes that we can talk about is this process called lake turnover. In really deep lakes like the Great Lakes and in some cases inland lakes, water is typically cooler in the deeper depths and warmer at the surface. But in the spring and in the fall, when the temperatures of those deep waters and surface waters become more similar, lake waters can actually mix. Now, this mixing draws the deeper waters to the surface And as they do, it brings with them nutrients that might have settled to the lake bottom over the course of the season. This can encourage the production of a variety of organisms that basically form the base of the food web in the Great Lakes. Now, through the process of mixing, it also draws oxygen-rich waters down to the bottom of the lake, and this can be important for certain benthic organisms. With warming air temperatures occurring with changing climate, we can expect that differences in temperatures between the deep waters and the surface waters becomes greater. This can, at a minimum, alter the timing of when lake mixing might occur. It might occur later in the fall or early in the spring, or in some cases it could stop mixing altogether. And in fact, we had some evidence that there was no mixing detected in parts of southern Lake Michigan in the spring winter of 2011 to 2012 and then 2016 to 2017. All right. So that would be bad if it didn't mix. You, you want the water to mix. If it didn't mix, it wouldn't bring those oxygenated waters to the organisms at the deeper depths, and it wouldn't bring the nutrients upwards to spur primary production. Yes. Uh, Now, another way that the lake functions is the things we slip into it from the tributaries, man-made and otherwise. And it sounds like climate is going to have a big impact on that, too. Sure. So with changes in climate besides the warming air temperatures, we can expect changes in our precipitation patterns. And multiple projections tell us that rain events are going to become more severe when they do occur. With severe rain events, we have the likelihood of having more water flow across the landscape into tributaries, which eventually flow into the lake. And with those runoff events, these flowing waters can carry with them, in some cases sediment, in some cases nutrients, and in other instances, toxic materials that are essentially delivered directly to the lakes. All right. So it's interesting. We've got a situation where we're putting more stuff, maybe more toxic stuff into the lake, and the lake is mixing itself up differently than it used to. It's got to be a bad outcome for things that live in the lake. 
Sure. It's changing to some degree the temperatures of waters favored by certain fish. It changes their chemical properties. It changes um, the physical structure on the lake bed itself. And these kinds of climate changes, they're not only problematic to some degree for our fishes, but they can be a challenge for us as well. We have infrastructure designed to hold certain storm water events, we'll say. These include our sewage systems. After an extreme rain event, if the capacity for a given system becomes overloaded, managers of that system are required to discharge materials directly into the lake, and this tends to be untreated sewage. That, in turn, will lead to deoxygenated water, the input of unwanted substances, uh, many different pathogens into the lake, and obviously it's not a situation that helps fish or the people wanting to recreate on a given water body. Yep, lots of beach closures from that kind of thing. We don't don't want to swim in it. I imagine the fish don't either. They definitely do not. (laughs) Now... um, what does this mean for uh, different kind of species? I hear people talk about cold water fish and cold water fish migrating, and I, there's been migration already. I, I was surprised to read about how fish are moving now. Sure. And we've got some really compelling studies occurring throughout the province of Ontario, through Inland Lakes in Ontario, that are showing us that species including smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, bluegill, and some sunfish are being documented as moving northward at a rate of about eight miles per year. And this northward expansion is putting them into water bodies that have historically been dominated by walleye, which is, of course, a recreationally really popular fish. The challenge for walleye is that these um, new residents to the lake result in more competition for prey that walleyes would otherwise feed on, and it might actually limit the production of walleye in some of these systems. All right. So right now we can say fish migration is changing lakes as we know them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what does that mean as things continue to spiel out here? I mean, are there are we looking at some species that we're just not going to see anymore in where we used to see them? So it could potentially lead to those kinds of changes. I don't think in too near of a future. I think what we can expect are range restrictions, especially for some of these cold water fish that are favored by anglers. The degree to which their habitats are going to become less suitable is part of the uncertainty that we try to account for when we try to plan for changes in climate. So it's difficult to say exactly what species might be most heavily hit, but we know some of the cold water fish like lake whitefish, um, lake trout, our salmonid species are going to experience some challenges in the lakes. I'm talking with Dana Infante. She's an associate professor in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University, and we're talking about uh, the ecology of the Great Lakes. I wanted to ask a question about the larger and smaller Great Lakes. People look at Lake Superior, and certainly I think, well, that lake is so big, and it's in such a cold place that it's not really going to do a lot of warming like Lake Erie, a shallow uh, lake that's further south. Uh, Is that true? I mean, can people say, well, the cold water fish in Lake Superior are going to be great? To some degree, the size and depth of Lake Superior helps to buffer it from changes that are expected to occur, especially the warming air temperatures. However, over time, a water body's temperature is a direct product of the air temperature. And so as air temperatures continue to rise, at some point that rise will lead to detectable changes occurring in Lake Erie. And we actually have some evidence that some warming water temperatures in the lake are leading to changes in fish. 
one study was done on sea lamprey. Um, this is an invasive species. It preys on many of the popular game fish that are found in the Great Lakes. And They're that sucker fish that sucks onto they, the side? Absolutely. They're parasitic, and they, they f- often kill, sometimes just wound, their prey species. So as water temperatures have warmed in Lake Superior... Um, we have evidence that lamprey are becoming larger in size and they're producing more offspring. With larger sized lamprey preying on game fish, the likelihood that the lamprey will kill the species increases. And of course, with more young lamprey, there is more cost to treat those lamprey so they don't get out of control. And now what about the smaller lakes? Do they just warm up a lot and a lot faster? Um, yes, that would be with less area to sort of buffer those changes in temperature. Our small inland lakes would be much more vulnerable to changing climate than the larger Great Lakes in some cases. And is that why we see the algae blooms uh, popping up in, in Lake Erie so much easier? So to some degree, the algae blooms are being caused by changes in climate. But of course, it's important to remember that a big cause of the blooms results from nutrient loading coming Uh from, in large part, not completely agricultural landscapes. How climate affects this is with these intense precipitation events, increased nutrients are getting washed into the tributaries that drain into Lake Erie, which then make their way into the lakes. And where the warming temperature affects these blooms, it's suspected to be causing certain types of algae to be more common with these warmer waters. One more common algae is the um, toxin-producing microcystis, which is an algae that actually affected the city of Toledo's drinking water supply in 2014. I'm talking with Dana Infante. She is with the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University, and we're talking about the ecology of the Great Lakes, and she participated in an assessment of the impacts of climate change on the Great Lakes that was a report released earlier this year from the Environmental Law Policy Center. I I did want to talk to you a bit about... um, extinctions and the possibility of extinctions. The report was a little reluctant to predict that the changes in the lake were going to create extinctions. Can you walk us through that? Sure. And I think the point to keep in mind is that losing a species entirely would mean that it could not access suitable habitats or that the habitat might change so dramatically that it didn't have time to adapt and potentially access these new habitats. But I think that extinctions resulting from climate change will, at least through most of the coming century, hopefully be rare in this region. Um, There will be refuges that maintain cooler waters that can support some of our cold water species. And an outright extinction is probably... um, not fully likely. What I think may happen is we might lose the presence of species in the region, even as they might make their way to northern areas. So we're more likely to just see species move away and they can find somewhere else to flourish. Potentially, yes. Um, But there might be reduced numbers. Yes, I think we're going to see reduced numbers for many species. Like popular species that we like? Unfortunately, yes. A number of those recreational species that we love to fish for, again, lake trout, salmonids, in river systems, it might be brook trout or rainbow trout. These fishes depend on cold water. And as the air temperatures warm, we're going to lose some of that cold water habitat, and we will not necessarily have as many of these cold water species as we do today. I I wonder, are there a lot of um, people watching this? How many people like you are there out there who are doing research on this and 
um, have an idea of what's happening? So I think that within the Great Lakes region, we have a really excellent network of fisheries and aquatic ecologists who are aware of the challenges occurring with climate change. We've got some great universities in the region, some research institutions, and we have a number of government agencies that help support research on these matters. Now, that said, the changes that are likely to occur with climate are very complex. They're ecosystem scale efforts and that takes a lot of cooperation among these various scientists to put the pieces together to really understand what might happen. So who does that? Who puts the bigger picture together? So if it comes to thinking about who's supporting this research, it is typically but not always supported by federal agencies like the U.S. Geological Survey, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and NOAA. And in the Great Lakes region, we also have some binational agencies, including the International Joint Commission and the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, who help support answering questions that can actually help managers on the ground make some decisions on what they may do with changing climate and their priority species. All right. And that sounds pretty good. Do, do they or do they don't? Can, do they think hard enough about climate change? Are these organizations uh, uh, more focused on day-to-day matters, or do they have a climate change game? I am confident that every one of these agencies is aware and working to some degree on issues related to climate change. Certainly in the Great Lakes region, we have a variety of other challenges with our fisheries. They include things like human land uses, which we know are problematic across the landscape. We have invasive species. We have spread of disease. In some cases, we have overfishing. And managers are typically working to address those problems. And so that becomes a priority for the researchers, even as researchers are trying to integrate climate change questions into their work. Overall, when you size this up, uh, should we be optimistic or pessimistic? Uh, How do you feel about climate in the Great Lakes? Well, to be honest, I think we need to feel a little bit of both. We can first be optimistic because the quality of the research being done and the growing interest in solving some of the problems related to climate change is going to help us get to where we want to be. On the negative side, the changes in climate that we are likely to see are bigger in scale and scope than many of the other challenges we've seen in our Great Lakes ecosystem. The interrelationships between fishes, habitat, water quality are very complex, and it's going to take a lot of work to tease apart what might actually happen and to plan for these changes. Dana Infante is Associate Professor in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University. Thanks for joining us and talking about uh, what's happening with the ecology of the Great Lakes. She participated in the Environmental Law Policy Center's report, an assessment of the impacts of climate change on the Great Lakes. Thanks a lot, Dana. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we'll continue with climate-related issues. We'll go to northern Michigan, where indigenous groups are fighting to decommission a pipeline in the Great Lakes. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. All this week, Worldview and WBEZ are bringing you in-depth reporting on climate change and environmental justice as part of the Covering Climate Now collaboration with more than 250 news outlets. 
Worldview's Ashish Valentine was recently in northern Michigan. That's where several native tribes are using experiences from Standing Rock in a new movement to decommission the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline. About three and a half years ago, members of the Lakota Nation and allies gathered at the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in North and South Dakota to protest the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL as protesters call it. The pipeline would bring shale oil from northwest North Dakota through to an oil terminal near Patoka, Illinois. The no DAPL protesters argued that inevitable leaks from the pipeline would threaten water supplies and ancient burial grounds. For seven months, the protesters tried to stop the pipeline's construction and faced a police response that included water cannons, strip searches, and dog kennels. I went up to the Straits of Mackinac to check out the 13th annual Rendezvous on the Straits powwow late last month. There, I had the chance to meet some members of the community and talk to them about the legacy of Standing Rock. I was there for about seven months. That's Joe Hawk. He's a member of the Anishinaabe Crane Clan and was a water protector at the Standing Rock protests. I did it. I was Ogitsda, which means I was a frontline protector. And when I wasn't doing that, I was building uh, kitchens and outhouses. What got me involved was uh, Kalamazoo back in 2009. Over a million gallons of, uh, of crude oil was spilled into the Kalamazoo River, and it led to dozens of deaths, uh, over a billion dollars worth of cleanup so far. And uh, less than 20% has been reclaimed. I first went to the 1851 Treaty Territory where they sicked all the dogs on the people. And I went there to hold the front line to keep them from coming in and excavating the uh, cemetery there. And they did it anyways. So we set up an Anipi and we were praying to the ancestors for forgiveness. And uh, while we were praying... Um, some mercenaries and some law enforcement from North Dakota came in and tore down our Anipi as we were holding ceremony. And Anipi is a very sacred place. It's where we conduct our religious ceremonies. And while we were conducting it, they tore it down and pulled us out. That's in direct violation of the 1978 American Indian Indigenous Freedom of Religion Act. And uh, they weren't concerned with any human rights violations, any religious problems that that they would create because of that. Uh, In fact, they kidnapped me. Um, They stole all of my my regalia. They, um, I was in lodge, and that means I was just down to a bare minimum of only my underwear. Mind you, this was late October, and the weather was starting to get cold. They kidnapped us. They wrote numbers on us, just like what they do at Auschwitz, and they put us in dog kennels. And I was in jail for about seven days. They stole my money, my wallet, my phone, everything. Uh, And uh, after about seven days, they finally let me go 500 miles away and only in my underwear at 3 a.m. in the morning. And if it wasn't for some friends who happened to be in the area, I certainly would have perished that night. And that was the least of their worries. And that sounds extremely harrowing. Yes, I went back. uh, I could not go back. Everyone that I met was there, and they were also experiencing the same thing. My sister, Susie Desba, um, she was shot in the eye by a a grenade projectile right in the eye. Uh, um, She's blind. Another gal to my left, uh, later on, she had her arm blown off. What they would do is they'd take a percussion grenade and wrap it with duct tape so that instead of it going bang, it was actually uh, a grenade and, and a lethal one at that and a girl had her arm literally shot off. The only thing that was holding her arm on were a few tendons in the back and once again no one was punished for that type of behavior. 
Not only were we facing the, the Morton County Sheriff Department, but they also had the National Guard. Even in ceremony today in the NEPI, when we get to the third door at the moment and the time that they um, assaulted the uh, NEPI and pulled us out, I still had that flashback, so I, I still can't stay in ceremony while I'm within an EP. You know, where's the outrage from that? This is going on right here in the United States of America. This isn't some second or third world nation. This is home, our home. The Daily Beast even reported that National Guard troops directed two unloaded missile launchers at protesters for their, quote, observation capabilities. Seven months, about 300 injuries, and almost 500 arrests later, the movement failed to stop Dakota Access from building the pipeline. Chairperson of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, Aaron Payment, had rallied support in Michigan for the No Dapple movement. Well, one of the really big lessons we've learned uh, through the experience with the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline in Line 5, is the human rights violations that have occurred as a result. And they prosecuted people that were protesting, people who were exercising a constitutional right for free speech, were prosecuted. For Joe Hawk, part of the issue is that the U.S. should treat Native peoples as sovereign, as it agreed to in treaties. Standing Rock is a nation within a nation. And the United States government, as far as they are concerned, any corporation, any business, holds precedence over people and over nations that actually hold a treaty. The Standing Rock Sioux Nation holds a treaty. A nation cannot have a treaty with itself. It takes two equal governments to have that treaty. And uh, out of the 565 treaties that the government has uh, went into with First Nations, every single one of them has been broken. The Standing Rock movement ultimately failed to stop the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The pipeline started operation in June 2017 and now transports around 570,000 barrels of oil per day between back in North Dakota and Patoka, Illinois. But Hawk argues the movement was successful in other ways. At Standing Rock, we did get several uh, law enforcement officers to put down their weapon and say, I can't do this. And that was very powerful. They knew that what they were doing was horrendous, but they were motivated either by money or they were misinformed as to why they should be there. More from Aaron Payment. Now, as it turns out, most of those cases have gone away and people are not doing time. But while it could be seen as a negative because we haven't won the battle yet, in Indian country, it's a victory because we have mobilized like we haven't since the early 70s. And um, young people are engaged in this process now at a greater level than ever before. And um, our women, our Anishinaabekwe, are our protectors of our water. And so that's their role. But everybody has come together to support protecting our natural environment. And it's mobilized us like, like nothing has in a very long time. The No Dapple movement has had somewhat of a ripple effect among indigenous land rights activists, including some closer to home. The Lakota and Michigan, for one, have spent years lobbying to decommission the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline. Enbridge Line 5 carries crude oil and natural gas under the straits that connect lower Michigan to the upper peninsula at the very northern tip of Lake Michigan. It's 66 years old. That's decades longer than the infrastructure was designed for. This is a pipeline that was built in technology that was probably advanced in 1954, but today it's antiquated. Every 75 feet, anchors were supposed to be installed. 20% of the anchors were never installed. And then we teamed up with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Federation to do a dive and found out that another 20% of the anchors were just floating in the water. They weren't doing their job. And also during the dive, they saw that some of the invasive species that were camped on the pipeline were excreting waste that is acidic, that's destroying the outer coating. So this pipeline is 16 years past its projected life expectancy. It is going to spill. Right now, daily, there's 24 million gallons of oil that go through it. Previously, it had uh, sweet crude. They call it sweet crude. It's not sweet at all. It's globby oil that could actually potentially burst the pipe. So they've since uh, said that they're not pumping any sweet crude. And this is going to sound a little strange, but the waters right now, when you look down, you can actually see clear and that might sound that's wonderful because it's clean, but it's because our environment's been heated and it can't sustain the kind of life that it's supposed to sustain in this territory. 
the whitefish are at a delicate balance right now. And if the pipeline, Enbridge Line 5, if that were to burst, it's 16 years older than it's supposed to have uh, survived. And when that spills, and I say it's imminently going to spill, it will destroy our natural environment and the whitefish herd will be gone for good. And, you know, our people have fished in this territory since the time another famous fisherman walked this earth, and that's Jesus Christ. And imagine in one generation eliminating our ability to exercise our our fishing right to sustain our people. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Ashish Valentine. These are voices from a powwow I checked out in northern Michigan a few weeks ago. They were really involved in the Standing Rock protest, but there's also an old pipeline very close to them called Enbridge Line 5. After a lot of lobbying to close Line 5, Enbridge proposed building a replacement that, after a long approval process, might run in a tunnel under the straits. Here's a promotional video put out by Enbridge. Energy heats our homes. It cooks our food. It powers industry. And it fuels our quality of life. Enbridge safely delivers the energy Michigan needs. The light oil and natural gas liquids delivered by our Line 5 pipeline are transformed into the propane that keeps us warm and the gas, diesel, and jet fuel that keeps us on the move. While energy delivery is important, safe energy delivery is paramount. Protecting the Great Lakes is very important to the people of Michigan. That's why Enbridge has entered into an agreement with the state of Michigan to protect these waters and explore options for the long-term future of Line 5. Line 5, which crosses the Straits of Mackinac, has safely delivered energy to Michigan and the Great Lakes region for more than six decades, thanks to a suite of preventative measures. Today, we're working to make sure this vital energy infrastructure continues to serve Michigan and the region, while also upholding our promise to protect the Great Lakes well into the future. As part of our agreement with the state, we plan to replace the Line 5 Straits crossing with a pipeline secured in a larger tunnel deep under the Straits. The tunnel will be bored through rock as much as 100 feet below the lake bed using a tunnel boring machine. While the boring machine moves forward, it lifts... An Enbridge spokesman told Michigan Radio that, quote, the tunnel solution is the best long-term opportunity to secure the energy needs of the state while making an already safe pipeline even safer. Once again, here's Chippewa leader Aaron Payment. One of the scare tactics they've used is that if the pipeline shuts down, we won't have any propane for the UP. That's absolutely not true. Um, We're not asking to shut down the pipeline across the UP. The danger, the greatest danger, is underneath the Mackinac Bridge. And that's what we're asking. This concept of a tunnel that came under the previous administration and the current administration, um, the governor is a friend of ours, and Indian people support the governor, but she's entertaining the idea of a tunnel. If you've driven across the Upper Peninsula, there's all kinds of signs that the labor unions have put up that say, we support the tunnel. The tunnel is going to prove to be um, not feasible because our scientists across the tribes, we work together in the 12 tribes in Michigan, our scientists have told us that there's a four-tenths of a crevasse in the middle of the straits that means that a tunnel cannot be constructed there. And so this is a a real threat. Um, It will destroy our natural environment. It will destroy our way of life for fishing. Tribes are unanimous in our opposition to Line 5. Uh, The United Tribes of Michigan, of which I'm the president, has called for the shutdown of Line 5. Uh, We also have the Midwest Alliance of Sovereign Tribes, which is Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Michigan, that have all called for the shutdown of Line 5 and a national resolution for the National Congress of American Indians that calls for the shutdown of any kind of pipelines that threaten and endanger the local natural environment. One of the reasons why Enbridge does what they do is because they can and they get away with it. We're in a self-regulatory environment, and you have to sue in order for them to be held accountable. And so one of the things I've proposed is that they be required to have liability insurance for the full cost of the damage and that that money be escrowed and that we not have to litigate in order to have that those funds to fix the damage. If an oil company has to pay for the full cost of the liability, it will become not feasible and then they'll think twice about uh, having uh, weak pipelines in our territory.
My last question to Joe Hawk was what he learned from Standing Rock and from his work on Enbridge Line 5. That teaches me that the power is in the people and the power is not in the government. The government has no power. It's the people who hold the power and the people need to reclaim that. I'm Ashish Valentine, reporting from the 13th Annual Rendezvous Powwow in St. Ignace, Michigan. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview and Here and Now are both participating in Covering Climate Now, and you'll hear more about climate change on Here and Now coming up after Worldview. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll continue our conversation about climate, and we'll talk about fighting climate in the suburbs. The city of Evanston has some aggressive climate goals. They want to be carbon neutral by 2050. They want to be 100% renewable by 2030. And they've got a plan to get there. Evanston has a new climate uh, action and resilience plan. They just passed it at the end of last year. And we will talk with people from Evanston about their climate action and how you do climate change on a suburban basis tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Ashish Valentine. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.